0: Before we begin this episode of the Torah 101 podcast, I want you to listen to this short message. The month of August is Torch Podcast Improvement Month. We do a lot of podcasts here and we dedicated this month, the month of August. We dedicated it to try to get better, to improve, to up the quality of our podcasts. And part of that is a survey that we constructed. For our listeners, we want to get a sense, you know, of the, of the demographics, of the listening habits of what, of what people like, of what people maybe like less. And we want your feedback. Now you're probably not someone who likes to fill out surveys. You don't stay on the line to answer a brief survey. You don't go online and fill out the survey judging how good your sales associate was. You're not that kind of person. And you know what? Neither am I, but this is. The Torch Podcasts. This is Toro 101 and we want to improve. So if you can take a few minutes and click the link in the description of the podcast, you could also visit the dedicated website torchsurvey.com. Fill out the survey. It's, you know, it's five pages of questions, maybe two, three, four questions per page. And most of them you don't have to actually fill out. They're not required, but it does help us. Get a sense of who's listening and how they're listening and what they like and what they want more of and maybe some other things that we can do to, you know, benefit the listening public, things that are not included in our existing portfolio of offerings. Help us. Give us some feedback. TorchSurvey.com. The link is in the description. And as always, my email address is RabbiWalby at gmail.com and I look forward to your questions, your comments, and your feedback, and your survey entry. Our nation has been hoping for, has been awaiting, has been anticipating, has been yearning for Messiah for a very long time. And of course, this is all for good reason. We have learned about the great benefits of Messiah, of the Messianic era, we talk about the peace and prosperity and redemption and coming back to the land, salvation, the elimination of the Eight Sahara, the restoration of the pride of the nation, the fulfillment of all the prophecies, to resettle in the land, to rebuild the temple, to reinstall the Davidic monarchy, to restore all the laws, all the mitzvos, the majority of the mitzvos that can only be fulfilled in a temple-era existence. But even largely, we yearn for Messiah because Messiah signals the fulfillment, or at least the beginning of the fulfillment of the mission of Abraham, or the completion of the mission of Abraham. Abraham started a movement to make the world aware of God and to make the world submit themselves to God. And the time of Messiah is marked with the fulfillment of, of what Abraham started. The whole world will know about God. God will be one and his name will be one. The whole world will bow before him. The whole world will be fixed. The whole world will be perfected. So Messiah is something that we deeply covet, we deeply desire, and that is good. And we shall see that we're doing the 30 principles of faith and we're still in principle number 12. And part of this principle the idea of Messiah the Messianic age, the Rambam tells us when he organizes this principle, he tells us that part of it is to await Messiah, is to anticipate Messiah. So when we want Messiah, we await it, we desire it, we covet it, that is a great quality. But there's a little bit of a dark element to this as well. When the Messianic anticipation and fervor and desire, when it's not properly grounded, when people don't have sufficient education as to what Messiah is and what we have to look forward to, there is a risk and there is a history of false messiahs. And a false messiah can have a catastrophic, disastrous impact on Jewish communities, on the nation. They can be utterly destructive. And I think when we're talking about Messiah... And we spoke a lot, of course, about the prohibition against messianic prognostication to try to educate ourselves to know what is real and what is not. We learned about the inevitability of the false messiahs, meaning that there are going to be tests, the Rambam told us. It's important to study the subject on its own to understand the idea of false messiahs, maybe a little bit of the history of it, and to know about the dangers inherent in false messiahs. Now, it is interesting. There are a lot of positions of prestige in the Jewish world. Of course, we have great leaders, great halachic authorities, the heads of the great institutions, great post great halachic arbiters. And if you look at Jewish history we don't find a litany, a laundry list of false rabbis, of false halachic arbiters, of false leaders of the generation. We find many, many false messiahs. Somehow that position is more susceptible to frauds and charlatans. So we have no, on record, no false halachic arbiters But isn't it interesting that this other position, this other standing in Jewish life, the idea of Messiah, there are loads of false messiahs. And the question is why? Why is the subject of Messiah uniquely suited to have this trend of false messiahs? So I think just to get us started, I want to talk about the unique factors, the unique circumstances that Exist that can lead to false messiahs. So we talked about the importance of hoping for Messiah, of awaiting Messiah. So we're told, we're trained that we have to wait for it, and every day we anticipate it, and it's part of our prayers. It's a central part of our prayers. It's a real central part of Jewish life. So we're told to desire it, but not to jump to any conclusions and say this is it. And of course, messianic anticipation rises when themes are bad. And our history, certainly since we've been in exile, there's a lot of bad that we've undergone. We've undergone challenges and expulsion and anti-Semitism, pogroms, inquisition. We were in a lot of people's lands. We were wandering and we were at the mercy of many, many different types of oppressors. And when things get bad, and they get worse, and they get yet even worse, we yearn for salvation. We yearn for redemption. We yearn for peace. We yearn for stability and security. We yearn for Messiah. And there's a risk of people having the misconception that any predicament that you're in, any tribulations that you undergo... There's just the easy solution. There's the get-out-of-jail-free card, and that is Messiah. And therefore, there's a tendency that whenever the nation is reeling from tragedy, we're subject to oppression, to persecution, to severe decrees, and we're desperate for some sort of a alleviation of our suffering, messianic anticipation rises. And there's a tendency to reach for messiah and to be so desperate for messiah to crave it so deeply up to the point of suspending disbelief and there's a risk of becoming vulnerable to believe oh okay messiah has to come it's got to be around the corner this must be a harbinger of messiah this person who who seems to have maybe some sort of characteristic profile that may look like messiah maybe they are for sure messiah And that sort of hope, it opens the door for cheats, for frauds, for charlatans, for snake oil salesmen to make a claim, I'm your guy, I'll get you out of your suffering. And that is a very important subject to address. Messiah we have seen is compared to childbirth. We talk about the pain before Messiah as the pain of the pains of childbirth. And this comparison between Messiah and childbirth, it is apt on many levels. We talk about Messiah being like a transformation of the whole world. And seemingly, suddenly, any day could come, we're told, the whole world's changed. How does that happen? Well, how does childbirth happen? One day, one moment, there is no baby. And a second later, there's a whole new universe, a whole new baby arise. a whole transformation. Instantaneously. And just like childbirth, there is pain associated with bringing in this new life. The renaissance of Messiah is a product of a labor-like process. And there's another idea. It has to be fully baked. You may be very eager for the baby, but you don't want the baby after only a month or two or five. In utero. It's not good. You don't want to rush it on it naturally. Messiah, of course, it could come any day. But if it's not the right time for it to come today, you don't want to push it. It's not healthy. It could be destructive. But nevertheless, not everyone is so well-educated. Not everyone knows this. And people are susceptible to false messiahs. And things get rough. And messianic anticipation is high. And a charismatic person, they're talented and they're scholarly and they're different. And they're eccentric. And that seems to lend credibility that they, maybe they're Messiah. And if they're, you know, eccentric enough, maybe a bit psychotic, even better. And they promise salvation. And you know what? They're kind of crazy, kind of kooky enough. Maybe they qualify. And look, you know, they have some off-the-charts abilities, and they're charming, and they manage to gain a following. And that seems to lend more credibility. It bolsters their messianic claim. They gain some adherence. And people are vulnerable. They're naive. They're gullible. Or they're just good people who want salvation and believe, and are told to believe in Messiah they can get swept away and follow a false messiah. We've learned enough about messiah to know that there is, there is a lot of opacity about the subject. There's a lot of ambiguity in the subject. The whole subject of Messiah is, is a foreign concept. It's so central, but so foreign. And if people get desperate enough, they can grasp at straws. And they could look for indications of the prophecies being fulfilled and they could see phenomena around them and say, oh, this is a proof of Messiah and there's not to work with. And they could look for all sorts of indications of, oh, Messiah is imminent. And at that level, they can be exploited. There's enough ignorance as to what exactly Messiah is, what Messiah is supposed to do, how to vet them. And that, coupled with sufficient naivete and gullibility. There have been many imposters over the course of our history that have made false messianic claims, and it's dangerous, and we have to learn about it. Now, to cover the whole subject, we can't really do in one session. I have a book, the authoritative book on false messiahs, 700 pages in Hebrew where it just details the famous ones or the infamous ones, the ones that have achieved notoriety. But this is something which happens all all the time. And we cannot cover it all in one session, but we'll try to get the, the gist of it, the heart of the matter today. And we'll begin with the Rambam. When he talks about Messiah, he mentions the idea that there are going to be false messiahs. And he finds a bit of a backdoor way to introduce the subject, when he's telling us, how do we vet a Messiah? He tells us, and we've read this before, don't believe the Messiah has to do some sort of wonder, or some sort of miracle, some sort of suspension of nature, to invent, to innovate something that never existed prior, to revive the dead, and the like. That's not what we ask of Messiah. And what's his proof? What is his proof that when we evaluate a messianic, claim, we don't ask for a miracle. His proof is from a false messiah. In the second century, there was a false messiah named Bar Kochba, otherwise known as Bar Koziva. And Rabbi Akiva, who was one of the greatest sages of the Mishnah era, he thought that Bar Kochba, Bar Koziva, was messiah. And all the Sages of the generation believed likewise. Not all of them, but many did. But then he died. He was killed due to his sins. And once he was killed, it became known to all that he's not Messiah. That's a little bit of the history of this false Messiah. But the Raman brings it in to tell us, well, what did they use to evaluate the claim? They didn't ask for any miracles or any signs. So this is the first false messiah that the Rambam mentions. And uh, the history is important to mention very briefly. Of course, the Romans destroyed the temple either the year 68 or the year 70. There are different opinions about that. And Jerusalem is destroyed and the temple is destroyed. And the sacrifices are ended. And things go from bad to worse because the Romans begin to institute crippling decrees forbidding Jewish practice. And they destroy the city, and they rename the city, and they try to make a pagan temple on Temple Mount. And the Jews are not allowed to enter Jerusalem. And the Jews got fed up and they rebelled. And the rebellion was led by a very charismatic individual, Shimon Bar Kochba. He was a man of tremendous physical strength, but he was also a great scholar. And he begins to wage a very successful war against the Romans. And he was so successful, he managed to wrangle Jerusalem from the Romans. We even have coins today, minted coins from the era of Bar Kochba. In all likelihood, he began the process of rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem and restarting sacrifices. So this is a textbook messianic figure. He's a king, and he's doing things that we are expecting Messiah to do. Defeating the enemies, rebuilding the temple, restarting sacrifices. And Rabbi Akiva and many of his contemporaries considered him to be the Messiah. Now I will note, this was not universally accepted. The Midrash the Talmud tells us that Rabbi Akiva, when he saw Bar Kochba, he says, "This is the Messiah." And when the Torah foretells Messiah, one of the descriptions that it says is "Darach Kochav Miakov," a star will emerge from Jacob. Kochav is a star. Bar Kochba means the son of a star. Bar Kokhba, he's a star, and the Torah says that a star, Messiah, will arise. He's your man. Or so it seems. It was not universally accepted. In fact, we have an account of one of the sages at the time, vigorously, stridently contesting Bar Kokhba. And he told Rabbi Akiva, You'll be dead, and grass will grow on your cheeks. And Messiah will not be here yet. But many did accept him. Even though he was a fraud. Now the round continues, and it's very interesting to see how he puts this all together. He tells us what you need to do to be considered, or to be presumed to be Messiah. If there's a king from the house of David... And they are a scholar and they're studying Torah with intensity and they're performing mitzvahs with intensity like David, the written Torah, the oral Torah. And they compel all of Israel to follow the Torah. And they wage the wars of the Almighty. Someone like that, we can presume, we don't know for sure, but we can presume that they are Messiah. Now, I think what he's trying to say, and we'll see more about this in a bit, Rabbi Akiva, it wasn't bound, uh, baseless and, and groundless for him to suspect that, that Bar Kokhba was Messiah. He was a king, and he waged the wars of God, and he compelled the Jews to follow the Torah. He has the criteria, or at least enough, to be presumed Messiah. Someone like that, they are a very good candidate but it's not yet settled. Continues the Rambam. If they did all of that, and they actually built a temple in its correct place, and they gathered all their brethren, all their co-religionists, from the far fun places that they may be scattered to, in that instance, we know that this presumed Messiah is definitely Messiah. And then they'll fit to the whole world, first the Jewish world, then the world at large, and we're there. Now, what if someone is a presumed Messiah, they have a lot of the criteria, but they don't quite finish the job? The Raman tells us, well, they could still be a righteous person. They could be considered a king, like the rest of the kings of the house of David. But we know for sure, if they don't succeed in everything, or they die, or they're killed, we know for sure that they are not the Messiah that the Torah foretold. Continues the Rambam, and the reason why we have this, why is there someone who who really resembles Messiah? They're a king, and they're doing all these miracles, or... They're waging these wars and being successful and they're compelling the nation to follow God and, and they seem to have a lot of what's needed but they don't finish the job. The reason why such phenomena exist God is testing us in the subject of Messiah we will be tested. God will test us with false and unrealized. Messiahs, and that is to be expected. So the Rambam lays out what Messiah needs to do. If they do part of the job, we can presume that they're Messiah pending the completion of the job. And if they don't complete the job, they could still be righteous, they could still be a king, just not Messiah. And that's all part of the test. Now, the Rambam does not mention this, but he does give us a certain format. If there's a king who compels the nation to follow the Torah, to follow God, we can surmise, we can presume that they're Messiah. The Talmud tells us that there's someone who qualifies for this exact description. And that's King Chistia, Hezekiah. The Talmud tells us that he launched a Messiah-esque revolution of repentance, of faith of rededication to Torah. They were facing a great enemy, Sanherib, the Assyrian king. He already destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. And he scattered the ten tribes, the ten lost tribes. And he proceeded to besiege Jerusalem and to trap Chistia, Hezekiah, the king of Judah. And then a miracle happened, and a plague destroyed the entire Assyrian army. And the nation endured. Why, says the Talmud, was Hezekiah deserving of this great miracle? So the Talmud tells us what he did. What was this great righteousness of Hezekiah? It was because of Torah. He compelled the nation to study Torah. And the Talmud tells us how he did it. I always think this is a good Talmud, you know, if we have maybe some, some rosy fantasies about what Messiah is like and how easy and pleasant it's going to be for us, this may shatter some of those fantasies. The Talmud tells us what he did. He took a sword and he walked to the house of scholarship, to the base medrash. And he says, if you study Torah, great. If not, I'm going to stab you. How is that for some? religious compulsion. That is what Chishiah Hezekiah did. He launched a revolution. And he was the monarch, he was the sovereign, and he was not negotiating about this. If you're with us, great. If not, you're, you're out. And how did it go? The Talmud tells us they made a study. They made a survey. And they inspected the land of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, so across the whole vast expanse of the land, they wanted to find, is there a single ignoramus? Is there a single person who is not well-studied, well-versed in Torah? And they couldn't find a single one. And they went from Givas to Antiphras other places in the land. And they couldn't find a, a child, a male child, a female child, an adult male, an adult female. They couldn't find anyone who was not an expert in the very complex and intricate laws of purity and impurity. That is the success of Hezekiah's revolution. So we have a Jewish king from the right family. He's a direct descendant of David. And he unleashes this religious, this spiritual, this Torah renaissance, and he defeats a fearsome enemy. He wages the war of God. Hezekiah sounds like he has all the characteristics of Messiah. And the Talmud says that he almost was. God, says the Talmud, wanted to make Hezekiah a messiah. And Sancheirev, the enemy that he defeated, that would be the war of Gog and Magog. That would be the apocalyptic war that's foretold in the prophecies. But, ultimately, Hezekiah didn't become messiah. And the, the Talmud tells us, the Midrash tells us, that he did not praise God sufficiently after the miraculous defeat of Samcheir and the Assyrians. Midrash tells us, had he done that properly, he would have been the Messiah. Now, when we read about this Rambam, when he tells us that if there's if there's a king who was studying Torah like David, performing mitzvahs like David, compelling the nation. To go in the ways of Torah? Wage in the wars of God? Someone like that is presumed to be Messiah. And that sounds a lot like Christia, But he didn't finish the job, and therefore he's not the right one. What is he? He is a righteous king. Now, Bar Kokhba is a little bit of a different type of Messianic claimant. Maybe Bar also could have been a presumed Messiah, and that's why Rabbi Tiva and his colleagues presumed that he was Messiah. But obviously, did not pan out. But we see already over here, just getting started, in the subject of false Messiahs, of unrealized Messiahs, there are different types. There are people that we can presume are Messiah. They have some of the characteristics of Messiah. There are grounds. To presume that they are the one that we are awaiting, but ultimately just doesn't, doesn't pan out. They prove to not be the right one. And they're still a great king, but they're not Messiah. Bar Kokhba, he's on a different class. The Ramam stresses that he died because of his sins. He's not viewed as a righteous king. He's not a hero. In fact, we don't call him Bar Kokhba. We call him Bar Koziva. Not the son of a star but the son of a lie. It was all false. His messianic claim was a falsehood. Maybe it could have been if he was more righteous, but ultimately it was just a disappointment. It was a falsehood. Now, Demetrius tells us that there were other people that maybe could have, maybe should have been Messiah. For example, listen to this. Demetrius tells us that Samson, the mighty one, the mighty judge, the great judge who waged the war of God against the Philistines, there were some grounds that he was Messiah or he could have been Messiah. In fact, the Midrash tells us that Jacob prophetically saw Samson and thought he was Messiah. But ultimately, Jacob foresaw that he's going to be killed and he's not going to be Messiah and therefore he prayed for him. But there was something about Samson that lended some credibility to the claim that he has some Messianic chops. Now, it is interesting. We know that Samson, he married a woman who was not originally Jewish, Delilah. Now, it's important to note that Samson and Solomon, who married foreign women, they they all converted. They all became Jewish before they got married. That's clear. But maybe this is too subtle of a point. Why did they do that? What is the rationale of getting married to these women to begin with? It led to Samson's undoing. It led to Solomon's undoing. That act, our sages tell us it has some element, some undertone of a messianic process. The idea of pulling out sparks of holiness from places that you would not otherwise expect it, that is very much associated with Messiah. And that's why, we've talked about this in the past, Messiah, the the genealogy, the pedigree of Messiah, is so It's so unexpected, It's so not pristine. Because that is this process of taking the whole world that's full of so much falsehood, full of so much heresy, and finding a little spark of holiness, of purity, and fanning that to life, and having that take over everything. So Samson and Solomon, they both had some element, some spark, if you will, some characteristic that has some overlap with Messiah. Now, why did it not pan out? We don't know. Maybe they weren't quite there. Maybe the nation did not have sufficient merit. But there is a whole category of people who maybe were potential Messiahs but were unrealized. Think about it. If if Jacob saw Samson prophetically and said, this may be Messiah, he was obviously supremely Qualified, And he, of course, is a great hero of our history, but ultimately it didn't work out. Now, we're getting a bit in the weeds here, but there is maybe even another category of someone who wasn't even alive for long enough to develop their messianic potential— But we are told from very reliable sources that David's first son from Bathsheba, who died, was unnamed. David prayed very vigorously to try to give life to this child. According to our sages, this child was destined to be the Messiah. And had this son of David, not Solomon, built the temple, that would have been permanent. And that's why David was so desperate to have some life given to this child. So this is maybe even another category of someone who didn't even develop their messianic potential, but maybe would have been in some other some other counterfactual world. Now the round continues, and he talks about JC. He tells us that Yeshu, the Nazarene, he considered himself to be Messiah. And he was killed in the Jewish court of law. And this is an example of a different type of false Messiah. And he quotes a verse in Daniel that says that there will be false Messiahs that will arise with the intention or with the test of trying to get you to stumble. And the Rambam very succinctly tells us that there's no greater stumbling block than someone who has the character profile of Yeshu. He says all the prophets, all the prophecies, when they talk about Messiah, he is a redeemer of Israel. He's a savior of Israel. He's someone who gathers the nation back to their homeland. He's someone who strengthens the observance of mitzvot. And this individual, he did the opposite. He caused the nation to be destroyed, to be slaughtered, to be scattered, to be depressed, to be lowered and, and denigrated. And they take the Torah, instead of strengthening it, to weaken it and try to replace it. And instead of getting the whole world to submit themselves before God, he created a false god, or he led to the creation of a false god that others will follow. You know, when you think about this whole subject, we could talk a lot about why why Jews reject Christianity and J.C., of course, as a god, which is ridiculous, but as a messiah. You could talk about, you know, the historicity, there's no contemporaneous accounts, all the accounts come much later, and there's the famous forgery of Josephus, and there's the thousands and the, 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 the lack of reliability of the Christian texts, completely unreliable. Just so many different variants. Uh, there's the old joke that they say that the priest, when he died, or well, maybe it was the pope, I don't know. And they said to him, listen, it doesn't look good for you, but you used to wear a yarmulke, so maybe you have a little bit of uh, merits, a little small merits. So you have one one request before we send you to to purgatory, to hell. So he says, listen, I I dedicated my life to the study of the the Christian scripture, but it's so confusing, so many different texts. I want to see the original text. And they show him the original text, and he starts crying and crying and crying and crying. And he says, no, 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 the original text says, doesn't say celibate, it says celebrate. And my whole life I suffered. It's a joke that they say. But the truth is there are, there are thousands and thousands of variants. And you could point that out and say, well, how can we rely on this when it's, you know, it's so chock full of errors? And we could highlight the fact that there's just the corruption of, of the texts of the Tanakh. You know, what does Alma mean? It's been, it's been widely, of course, legislated and discussed. But of course, you know, just saying, if there's a married woman whose husband is out of town, and she becomes pregnant, there's a lot simpler way to figure out what happened. How can J.C. be a descendant of David if we don't have a father? How could it be that, you know, there's so many inconsistencies as to even how the genealogy would work? And to point out, point out the absurdity of, of of viewing a human first as a Messiah, or then he's dead, or maybe he'll come back, or or maybe he's part of God, Trinity – and to abrogate the law, there's a lot of different areas. It's a smorgasbord of options if you want to contend with the legitimacy and the veracity of Christianity. But Ramam does it very succinctly. He says, JC is literally the opposite of Messiah. You can't think of anyone less qualified. What do the prophets say? Save Israel, he did the opposite. Redeem Israel, he did the opposite. Gather in Israel, he did the opposite. Strengthen the Torah, he did the opposite. Literally, whatever the prophets talk about, he did the exact opposite. There's no worse claimant of Messiah than him. And of course, well, oh, he's coming back. Ain't that convenient? But the Jews never accepted him and never will. And it's, of course, absurd. Now, this is maybe a subject that we could talk about at greater length, but I will tell you, the the Raman himself addresses it. The Raman wrote a letter, and we'll talk more about this letter in a bit. He wrote a letter, an epistle to the Jews of Yemen. Yemen, of course, is a great and ancient Jewish community underneath, south of the Arabian Peninsula. And in the 12th century, they were enduring a lot of turmoil, and they had a false messiah arise, and they were really reeling. And Ramam was sent a letter to, to help provide direction to the community, and he wrote an incredible letter, it's a, really a small book, to the communities of Yemen. And in it, he addresses the whole subject of false messiahs and messiah in general and prophecy. It's a beautiful letter. It's an authoritative letter on our subject. But he addresses and he elaborates more on this point. But even subsequently, about a a, a century later, there was the famed disputation of Barcelona. After Rambam passed, the next great sage was the Ramban, so Maimonides and Nachmanides. And he lived in Spain. And he was forced to debate a Jewish apostate, Pablo Christiani. This was a Jew who became Christian. He saw the light. And he says, I'll prove that JC is true and Judaism is false. And I'll do it using only sources from the Tanakh, and from the Talmud. I'm so confident, says this Jewish apostate, that I could even trounce the greatest rabbi of our era, Nachmanides, in a debate. And the Ramban was forced to debate, and he agreed to debate, provided that he was allowed to speak freely. The the king was a Christian, and he allowed a debate to happen in front of him and his ministers. And he allowed Nachmanides, Ramban, to speak freely. And there was a four-day debate. And over the course of this debate, Ramban systematically, completely obliterated, eviscerated, and destroyed the arguments favoring the legitimacy of J.C. And he trounced them so completely, everyone agreed that he won the debate. But then the church says, no, actually we won the debate. So he responded by writing down the minutes, by writing down like a journal of all the arguments from all four days back and forth. And we have a book, an extant book, where he recounts everything that happened over the course of these these debates. So it's an account of the disputation, a running diary, a journal, back and forth. It's a remarkable account. And he he gives the whole introduction. The great master, our king, he instructed me to argue with Friar Paul in his chambers in the palace in Barcelona. And I said, I'll do it if you let me speak freely. And they said, Well, you can't embarrass Christianity. He says, Well, I'm not going to embarrass Christianity. We'll just argue on the merits. And they start the debate. And the first thing he does, it's a masterful stroke. You learn how to debate from this. He says, Listen, we could argue about a lot of things. There's so many different areas that we could have polemics about. But let's get to the heart of them and let's get to the crux of the debate. All I want to debate about, let's at least begin the debate, did Messiah come like you claim, Christians? Or did Messiah not come like we claim, like the Jews claim? That's how it started. And then afterwards, we can talk about other themes. Is Messiah a God like you claim? Or is he a regular, ordinary, standard human born from a, a father and a mother, a man and a woman? And then we could argue about other things, like, well, is our Torah legit? Or maybe your version, your replacement, is that legit? That's the progression of the debate. And then, this is all the words of the Ramban. And then, Friar Paul, Pablo Christianity, he says, I will prove from the Talmud, from the Jewish Talmud, the Messiah already came. So the Ramban, I say, Rabban responds and says, okay, before you give any proofs, just realize how absurd that claim is. People are saying that, that from the Talmud, you could prove that Messiah came, that, that JC's Messiah. He says, wait a minute. If so, well, when, when did Messiah exist? Messiah existed before the writing of the Mishnah, before writing of the Talmud. And Rabbi Akiva and his colleagues, and the authors of the Mishnah, Rabbi Judah the Prince, they were a hundred years after the temple was destroyed, and hundreds of years later the the, the, the Talmud was written. And if they believed in the messianic nature of, of, of Yeshu, and that he's true and his religion is true, if that is so, how were they Jewish? How come they never renounced their Judaism. They were Jewish. They were Jewish like us. In fact, all of our religion is canonized in the Talmud. So we're Jewish like the sages of the Talmud were. And they never renounced their Judaism. They never accepted Christianity. If you are right, just how absurd it is, if you are right that the the authors of the Talmud believed in JC, why would they be Jewish? Why would they be Christian? That's how it gets started. And it goes from there. And uh, listen, it's a very long piece. Maybe we should do it as a standalone study. But I'll just read one citation from the actual arguments. Again, this is the Ramban Nahmani's Nachmanis in the Disputation of Barcelona. He says to him, listen, this is all, again, quotes. Messiah is supposed to gather in all of Israel and the 12 tribes. And your Messiah, Yeshu didn't do that. He didn't even gather in one person. And he's supposed to build a temple? He didn't build a temple. And he's supposed to rule over the whole world? He didn't rule over himself. He didn't have self-control to rule over himself. So it's a beautiful read, and again, I would recommend it. And maybe we will do sometime in the future a standalone study of this work. But the actually, the Ramban had to escape. He had to flee from Spain due to this debate. And he had to actually um, flee to the land of Israel. But this is an example of what we have to contend with, uh, thanks to the phenomenon of false messiahs. It's well documented how much the Jews suffered due to this particular false messiah. Now, it's noteworthy. Every messiah is a little bit different. This movement did not make significant inroads amongst the nation. The, The Jews knew it was a fraud. The movement only gained momentum after the law is abrogated and it's opened for the Gentiles, and they don't need to circumcise, observe Shabbos, eat, kosher, none of that. Then it became very popular. And there was an effort on the part of the Jews to separate any Jewish Christian, so to speak, notions where they actually added a 19th blessing to the Amidah that was cursing the Jewish Christians. You have to make a choice. You will be Jewish. That's great. You will be Christian. You cannot be Jewish. But of course, over the course of our history, how many thousands, maybe millions of Jews were slaughtered as a result of this false messiah and everything that flowed from it. Now, the phenomenon of false Messiahs, the phenomenon of unrealized Messiahs, did not end there. Throughout the centuries, we have had many, many false Messiahs. Some of them gathered large followings. Some of them had smaller groups of adherents. But all of them left a trail of disappointment, of devastation in their weight. All of them caused our nation a degree of suffering, either more or less. Because what happens? If they gain some traction, they gain some adherence eventually, if they're false messiahs, the hope bubble is burst. And what results from that is is despair, is depression, is recriminations, and of course shattered hopes. Again, we're supposed to believe in Messiah, we're supposed to anticipate it, we're supposed to yearn for it. And if there's something that gets our, our, our heart pulsating and there's some messianic fervor we can get consumed with the idea make radical decisions make permanent decisions sell your possessions move take very aggressive stances against your gentile neighbors and if it's a false messiah it will collapse and then the adherents will have to confront their decisions and they'll be forced to con- tend with the dissonance of making a wrong decision and trying to come back for that is very hard. False messiahs lead to very significant setbacks. And again, uh, that book that I mentioned earlier, The History of False Messiahs, it's in Hebrew. It's called False Messiahs and Their Opposers. More than 700 pages. It offers detailed histories and chapters on 20-plus false messiahs. And these are just the 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 famous ones, the infamous ones, the ones that gained some notoriety. But this is a repeating phenomenon, and it causes a lot of a lot of damage. Now, in the aforementioned epistle letter to Yemen, the reason why Rama wrote that letter is because they were in dire straits. The the community of of Yemen, a false messiah arose. And he wanted to create some sort of new religion that's like half Judaism, half Islam. And it did gain some adherence, even amongst some of the leaders of the communities. And they were suffering. you know They, they were subject to severe religious persecution by the Muslim rulers. And they reached out to Rambam for some direction. And the Ramam wrote an incredible little book. It's a letter, but it's really a book. In it, he encourages the community and he praises the community and he educates them how to know what the real Messiah is and what's a fraud, what's a pretender, and how to feel prideful and confident in Judaism. And he compares Judaism to all other false religions. He says that. Judaism is like a living person. And a false religion, it's like a statue. It's like a 2D version. From a distance, maybe it looks the same. You get close, you realize that there's nothing there. And this letter, it had such an incredible impact that it can be said that Rambam single-handedly saved Yemenite Jewry. And that's why the Ramam was accepted as the final word. You know, his rulings, his halachic rulings, are followed unquestioningly in the Yemenite community because he was on who who restored the community. And again, this work as well. If you get a copy of it in English, I would recommend that you read it. It too maybe is worthy of a standalone study. And we've mentioned some citations in the past. I'll read you. I'll read you one here. You see how the Ramam is dissecting the argument. And he he tells the recipient of the letter, who was one of the leaders of the community, he says, listen, I'm not bothered. I'm not surprised by the person claiming to be Messiah. He's clearly deranged. And you cannot blame a sick person unless you bring the malady upon yourself. Listen, some people are just mentally unstable. And you cannot blame them. And similarly, I'm not so surprised by by his followers. Most people are not learned enough; they don't know what it even means, Messiah. But you, it seems like the author of the letter, or his, uh, the recipient of the letter, the 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 one who was engaged in this dialogue with the Ramam, he, he maybe had some sort of suspicion. Maybe this guy's legit. The Ramam tells him, "I'm surprised that you, you are learned." You are a student of the Torah. You know enough to disprove this guy. Don't you know, says the Rambam, that Messiah is a great prophet? Greater than all the other prophets, with the exception of Moshe? Greater than Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Samuel, Joshua. Greater than all of them? With the exception of Moshe? And he'll have even qualities that will exceed that of Moshe. And someone's a false Messiah, a false prophet. They're liable for the death penalty. And you're right, says Rambam. He tells this person. You said that he's a bit uh, equilibrium and he's uh, eloquent and he's wise. Is that enough to be considered a candidate for Messiah? Messiah's a prophet. Almost at level Moshe. If anyone accepts such a person as Messiah, it's only because of their paucity of understanding of what the stature of Messiah is. They don't know what it's about. They don't know what the prophecies mean. They don't know how Messiah will rise. They don't know where Messiah will rise. Incidentally, he tells us, the Messiah, according to the sources, will rise not outside the land of Israel, but inside the land of Israel, and the impact will cascade from the land of Israel outwardly. And again, the Rambam reemphasizes The greatness of Messiah is, as a prophet, greater than all the other prophets. And in some areas, not not prophecy, but in some other areas, he will be greater than Moshe. Moshe was able to judge by sight. Messiah will be able to judge by smell. And he lists some sources that show the Messiah will have qualities and characteristics even greater than motion. Not, not prophecy, of course, but other areas. He's going to tower over all of the humans. He's going to be complete in his wisdom. He's going to have complete granite control over his Yetzirah. He'll be rich in all forms of knowledge. If someone who's like, yeah, they're clever, yeah, they're eccentric, yeah, they have some sort of charisma and charm to them, that's a moxie. They got some personality. They're a little crazy. If someone is not renowned, renowned for their wisdom, and they come to be a prophet, they're a false prophet. And we don't even listen to them. We just execute them. All the more so, someone like this who's ignorant, and he says he's Messiah. He's a great line here. He says, someone who is so ill-suited to be Messiah, claims to be Messiah, that claim itself is enough to prove that they're ignorant, too ignorant to be Messiah. Continues the Rambam, he says, I'll, I'll prove to you that this person is not legit. This person in in Yemen had told the people, listen, sell all your possessions and give it all to the poor. Give all your money to the poor. It's fine. We're going back to Israel. This man instructed people to give all their money to the poor. That is against the Torah. And he quotes the sources. The Torah says, don't give all your money to the poor. A maximum of 20%. That's it. And someone who goes against the Torah is a sinner. They're not Messiah. They're a sinner. And the people that listen to them are fools. And the same foolishness that causes this person to go against the Torah is causing them to think that they're Messiah. And he goes on and on. It's a very, very powerful letter. And he ends the letter with... An enumeration of the variety of false messiahs that have existed up to that point. He's telling the readers of the letter, this is not a new phenomenon. This is not the first time it's happened. You have to be aware of this phenomenon. It's destined to happen. It's foretold in the prophecy it's going to happen. And if you're aware of it, and you understand it, and you know what to look out for, you can be better prepared to reject any false messiah that may arise. And of course, this letter is written in the 12th century, 1173 they date it to. Since then, we've had a bunch more false messiahs. Of course, the most notorious, nefarious, and destructive of them all was the 17th century false messiah, Shabtai Tzvi. This was an individual who was very, very, very strange and he behaved in a very bizarre fashion. Like, for example, he married, so to speak, a Sefer Torah, a Torah scroll, and he did all sorts of perversions to Jewish law. And he would violate the Torah and then say, well, I'm a Messiah, so I can't do that. For example, he would enunciate the ineffable name of God publicly and would force other people to do it as well. And he ate non-kosher. He says, well, it's Messiah. We eat non-kosher. And he, again, behaved very, 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 very inappropriately. He brought a pastoral offering, not in Jerusalem, not in Pesach. He celebrated all three festivals in one week. And every time he violated the Torah, he would say a blessing. Instead of Matir Asurim, which means God releases those who are bound, he says, Matir Isurim, he who permits the things that are prohibited, and even called himself a god, and he engaged in orgies a crazy person, but very charismatic, and even a bit learned and that, when the nation was reeling, and the nation really was yearning for Messiah, and he has a small knot of true believers, and slowly his Claim to be Messiah, began to gain acceptance. And of course, most people don't know the details and can't vet it and they hear stories from afar and the stories get aggrandized and embellished and enlarged as it gets through the rumor mill. And before you know it, communities begin to sell all their possessions. And begin to denigrate the local rulers. And then you have great rabbis who say, yes, he's legit. And other great rabbis say, no, he's not legit. And those dissenters are attacked and threatened and forced to flee. And people begin to to sell their possessions and to prepare to go back to the land. And people begin to adopt the very strange and sinful behavior Of this false messiah. And he says, we're going on. We're marching on to Jerusalem. We're conquering it. And the Ottomans say, no, you're not. And they arrest him. And they tell him, listen, you either convert to Islam. Or we kill you. And he converts to Islam. And lived the rest of his life as a Muslim. A very large portion of the nation bought into this claim. What happens once it's shattered? Of course, the majority disavowed him. But there's a lot of pain, and a lot of suffering that goes into that. A lot of recriminations, a lot of depression swept the nation, and a small minority clung him, oh, this is all part of the plan, this is all part of the plan and the wrote to explain, well he has to convert to Islam because that's part of how he fulfills the messianic prophecy many Jews actually convert to Christianity, he says we're done with this Judaism, some converted to Islam, many committed suicide it's very destructive and we have to be aware of this That we know that every generation has, our sages tell us, has a spark of Messiah in it. The Talmud tells us Messiah can come today if we repent. Well, obviously, there has to be someone who's qualified should the generation be worthy. Every generation may have a potential Messiah, but hitherto Messiah has not yet come. It can still come today. It can come tomorrow. It could come in 100 years from now. We don't know we have a say in the matter, as we've mentioned, as we've elaborated. If we repent, Messiah will come. But if we repent today, Messiah can come today. So there has to be someone who is eligible, potentially eligible, in every generation. Now, if Messiah does not come in a given generation, that individual can still do very beneficial things for the nation, for the world. Meaning that someone who's not either a Messiah or nothing, they could be worthy of being the Messiah if the generation is worthy. And if not, they do other things. So for example, there were times where there was an aura of apostasy where the nation was suffering and they have a great leader who stems the tide of assimilation, of erosion of the religion. In a different generation, that person could be Messiah. In their generation, they stand up for what the nation needs. They could be a great teacher of Torah. They could inspire the whole world. And maybe they could be Messiah if the nation is worthy. But we can never forget that there's been a long, long, long history of false messiahs. And again, they fall into a bunch of different categories. Some are just total frauds, total imposters. Some people never get any traction amongst the nation. Some of them are sincere, just a bit misguided perhaps. Some of them maybe have the potential. It wasn't actualized for one reason or another. Of course, we have Christia, a great hero. He was righteous, is a righteous king, and could have been potentially had some sort of association with the Messianic qualities. Not Messiah, but maybe could have been. We have absolute false messiahs that were never accepted by any mainstream Jewish leader, like JC. We have false messiahs that did gain some acceptance in the eyes of the leaders, but ultimately proved to be a fraud, like bar Kachba. Other ones we haven't even mentioned, David Aruveni, Shlomo Malcho, he was in the category of those who maybe were sincere, but misguided that he was righteous, he was wholehearted. Ultimately, he was actually burned because he was Jewish. He refused to convert to Christianity, and the Catholic Church burned him at the stake. We have a variety of false and unrealized messiahs, and this is why I will tell you You know, we've learned that the subject of Messiah is very central to Jewish life. So much of the prophecies talk about it. So much of the prayers orient around redemption and Messiah. Nevertheless, people are very wary to talk about it. And the reason why, we've been burned before. And you don't want to get too close to the fire. And a lot of the modern, shall we say, last 500 years or so, modern false Messiahs, they're mystics, they're ascetics, they're eccentric. Maybe they're a bit psychotic, but okay. And that's why people became scared of the Kabbalistic study. The Kabbalistic Torah is the heart of Torah. It's the soul of Torah. But when you see a trend the people get into it before they're, they're ready for it and suddenly they think that they're, you know, a different level, they're angels, they're prophets, they're messiahs. People begin to be very wary and suspicious of it. Ramchal, one of the greatest sages that we've ever had, 1707 to 1746, didn't even make it to 40, wrote hundreds of books. The Goan of Vilna said about him, if he was alive, I would walk across Europe to study by him. He was banished. Repeatedly. Because they said, uh, someone so young who claims to have uh, visions and visitations of the angel and studying Kabbalah, he was viewed very suspiciously because that came soon in the aftermath of the Shabbat Tzvide debacle. It created, this, this whole notion of false messiahs created an aversion from talking too much about this subject. And even great innovations that ultimately proved to be very beneficial to the nation are not eagerly accepted in the beginning. For example, the Hasidic movement, it has been vital, indispensable for our nation. But when it was launched in the 18th century, it was viewed very suspiciously because it's more Kabbalistic, and it takes the Rebbe, the the, the the leader, the guide, the individual, and gives him a certain pedestal, does kind of smack a little bit of being a tad Messianic. And that becomes viewed with suspicion. We have to realize, until the real Messiah comes, we have to be aware of this idea, that there's going to be all sorts of people that appear that claim others claim for them that they're Messiah. That's not true. Some of them are very righteous, some of them are very wicked, and they come in all sorts of stripes and colors. And you know, even today, there are some Chabad adherents who still believe that their great Rebbe who passed away in the nineties, he's he's still alive, he's still Messiah, he's a representation of the divine, God forbid. We all want Messiah, the excitement for Messiah, the anticipation for Messiah. It's a critical element of this principle of faith. But we warned again and again about the dangers of Messianic prognostication. Now we understand why it's maybe so dangerous. Anytime someone claims they know Messiah is coming or they know who Messiah is or they are Messiah or they can point you in the right direction, it's very dangerous territory. What do we do? We follow our leaders. The Ramam has never misled us. Never. And he tells us, what do you need to do? What do you need to do to be presumed to be Messiah? And what do you need to do to, to be definitely considered Messiah? If there is a king from the house of David who studies Torah, the written Torah, the oral Torah, performs mitzvot with the same rigor as David's ancestor, and compels the Jews to follow the Torah, and fights the wars of the Almighty we can presume that they're Messiah. We don't ask for miracles. We don't need them to revive the dead. If they finish the job, they reestablish the monarchy. They rebuild the temple. They gather in the Jews from the whole world. They reestablish Jewish law over the land. They reinstitute sacrifices and Shemitah and Yovel. And they finish the whole world to worship God. And they don't change an iota, not a jot, not a tittle, not a letter of the Torah. Then you know they are the real Messiah. The criteria are well documented. And you will find that those who are so eager to to make a messianic claim or to point a phenomena and say that this is Messiah, those are usually the interemasis. And maybe some of them are sincere and wholehearted, and they just want salvation, that's okay. But the leaders don't 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 jump to that conclusion. We should be very aware of that as well. May we all merit to witness the arrival of Messiah, the real Messiah, speedily in our days, and may we not make the same mistakes that have happened throughout history. We shouldn't repeat the blunders of your. We understand, of course, we didn't cover the whole subject, but we understand that false messiahs are an inherent part of our history. It's foretold in the prophets it's going to be a test and we know about the immense danger inherent in it and hopefully it will serve as a cautionary tale we don't make these mistakes again hopefully we'll be around to witness the rebuilding of the temple the ingathering of the nation the reestablishment of the Davidic monarchy the real one sacrifices we should witness that the temple Jewish law the coronation of the real Messiah, may he come speedily in our days. My email address is RabbiWalby at gmail.com. If you listen to the podcast, in the description of every podcast, you find the email address. Don't spell it incorrectly or I won't get it. Of course, our website is TorchWeb.org. If you want to read some more about uh, what we do at Torch, you could click the link as well in any description of any one of my podcasts. But my email address is com. I look forward to your questions, your comments, and your feedback.